welcome you again um, this morning as we continue through our series to the book of Matthew. And this morning we're going to talk about unbelief, pride, and cowardice. Unbelief, pride, and uh, cowardice. But before we do, let's pray together again. Father, we just, what an incredible hope that we have in Jesus Christ, and um, pray you wouldn't, I pray you would help us, God, not to take it for granted, and I pray that we would truly be ever amazed by the glory that is to be revealed in us, as the Apostle Paul put it, that that would be our great hope, Lord, um, as we walk and live through this life, Lord, let that be our one great hope. And I pray this morning, as we think about unbelief, pride, and cowardice, I pray that you would guard us from all of these things. I pray that you would help us to stand faithful to you, to trust in you, to be courageous for you, God, as you have called us to be. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. I want to remind us of kind of the journey that we've been on so far as, as, by reflecting over the last few chapters in the book of Matthew. Uh, chapter 10, so a few chapters ago, Jesus sends out the tw- sent out the 12 and gave them important instructions about the challenges, if you remember, that they would face as proclaimers of the gospel. And the, the challenges would be many. They would face great opposition and If they treated Jesus one way, how much more are they going to treat his disciples a certain way? Okay? And then um, that set the stage for chapters um, 11 and 12 of the uh, increasingly negative reaction that Jesus himself would receive uh, from uh, the people, especially from the religious leaders. And already we saw that the Pharisees were beginning to plot how they might destroy him. And then in chapter 13... Well, we've been talking about the parables and, and uh, the, the, the mysteries of the kingdom that Jesus was un- unveiling through his teaching in the parables. And we saw uh, that many of the parables focused on this uh, the, a separation, how the kingdom of God is mysterious. It enters into the world. And one of the characteristics of the, par- of the, of the kingdom, which would have been shocking to many, is that it, it, it infiltrates the world. It's kind of hidden. It's kind of secret, but then it is revealed at the end of the day when the world is separated from citizens of the king, between citizens of the kingdom and those who are not. A great separation at the end of the age will take place. And so, in light of that, I think we can see then in the, um, in the remainder of the book of Matthew how, how the, that principle is illustrated. That is, we see how various types of people respond to Jesus and to the message of the kingdom of God. And in fact, we're going to see some examples of that in our passage today from Matthew chapter 13, uh, beginning in verse 53. And so if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to read from Matthew uh, chapter 13, verse 53, all the way to 14, verse 12. It says, when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there 
And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother, his, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry because of his oaths and his guests. Uh, And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. The word of God. You may be seated. It's going to be talking about unbelief, pride, and cowardice. Unbelief, pride, and cowardice. So, in the beginning here, or first part of this passage, Jesus returns to his hometown to preach the gospel. And naturally, the people are astonished at this. And this event is really ancient confirmation of that principle that still stands today, which is familiarity breeds contempt. It is precisely because they know him or they think they know him that they are unable to see him for who he is. They're just certain that he can't be this great prophet And interestingly, this account, I believe, refutes many of the false gospels that came about later that attributed to Jesus many of these miraculous signs that he did as he was a child, but almost certainly those things didn't take place. Because if Jesus worked miracles as a child, they wouldn't have been amazed that he could do these things. The the remarkable thing about Jesus' childhood is that it was unremarkable. And because of that, they're unable to receive him for who he really is. Not just the son of Mary and Joseph, but also the son of God. To them, he is the carpenter and the son of the carpenter. They know his brothers and his sisters. You see, they presume that they know everything about him. They know who his parents are. They know how he was raised. They know the context in which he is raised. So they presume that they know everything about him. So they have no account of where he has gotten these miraculous powers and this authority in his teaching. Um, and so, as an aside for this, as an aside from this, I just want to comment on something related to how we 
understand people and how we think about people. I think this is a good illustration that refutes uh, a very uh, simplistic view of humanity that just focuses on what, what has been called nature versus nurture. At different times in our society and different people, they tend to lean towards one or the other in terms of explaining why a person is the way that they, they are. You know, some people, some people like to focus on nature. Well, they were born that way. It's genetics. It's just who they are. Okay? Other people like to focus on nurture. Well, it was because they were raised that way. It's because they were treated that way by their parents. It's because they lived in this life circumstance and this life situation that makes them the way that they are. And for most people in the world, that, that's it. That, that's the only, that's, those are the only categories they have in which to explain somebody is nature and nurture and a mixture of the two. And I just want to say that we as Christians know that there is more to a human life than nature or nurture. There are two key factors that we as Christians add to those two, not not. We don't. Those two, nature and nurture obviously have an important, huge impact on somebody's life, but they're not the only things. There are two factors that are ignored by the world, and that is God and the human will, the human decision-making faculty which God has given to us. That is, there is a God who rules over all things, including nature and nurture, and is able to... to and, and is, he's, he's sovereign over those things, right? And so, what does that mean? It means that, that Jesus, because of his divine nature, and because God was at work in him, his life was unexplainable due to sheer nature or nurture. God was at work in him. There had to be an explanatory power for Jesus' life beyond mere nature and nurture. And I want to say that's reality for us. We as a Christian, and you see, this is important because the temptation in our world today is to excuse our sin because of nature or nurture. I was born this way. So it's who I am. I can't help it. So I'm going to embrace it. Nature. Or nurture. My, my parents treated me like this. And so we blame our past or our circumstances on our present decisions. And in other words, we live our whole lives controlled by other people's choices. I just want to say, we as Christians, we don't, we don't follow that lie. We don't follow that logic. Because the Bible says that he who is in Christ is a new creation. Behold, the, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In other words, the, a key doctrine of Christianity is that when you believe and repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are given a new nature. You are not who you used to be. So I can no longer say, well, it's just who I am. No, Christ has birthed in me a new nature and it's not who I am. I'm new. I'm different. I'm not bound to, the, to my feelings. I'm not bound to my sense of earthly identity. I'm bound to Christ and Christ alone. And the second thing is the human will. 
Now, of course, God is even sovereign over our will. The Bible says, apart from Christ, our will is enslaved to sin. We'll always choose sin apart from the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Nevertheless, we do have a will and we do have a choice that God has given to us as shown by the fact that we, at the end of time, will all be held accountable for the choices that we make. Right? And so, in other words, in other words, no matter my genetics, no matter how I've been treated in the past, I always have a choice with what I do with my life today. I am not bound, I am not enslaved to the decisions of others. I can always make a decision for myself. Just because certain people treated me in a certain way in the past doesn't mean I have to choose the same things today. Doesn't mean I have to choose to live in a certain way today. We always have a choice. Now, I grant that the circumstances of our lives, in most cases, are unchosen. So, I mean, we, our choices play a huge factor in what circumstances we often end up in. But at the same time, oftentimes we have no control over the circumstances that we find ourselves in. That's true. But even though you might not be able to choose the circumstances you find yourself in, you always have a choice concerning how you respond to the circumstances. Just because somebody treats you a certain way doesn't mean you have to respond by treating them the same way in return. You always have a choice. There will always be a decision, no matter, no matter the circumstances you find yourself in, there will always be a choice that will honor God. A response that will honor God that, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you're obligated to choose, regardless of how strong the temptation to choose otherwise. The Bible says there's always a way of escape. We are new people. And you see, returning to Jesus now, the Nazarenes didn't like the fact that Jesus defied their expectations. They couldn't, they couldn't, uh, they, they didn't like the fact that they didn't, have an explan- they didn't have an explanation for why he was the way he was. And that will be true too. When you follow Jesus and your life begins to change and the people you used to run with and the things you used to do, and, the, and those people no longer have an explanation for why you are the way you are now, many of them won't like it. But you're going to have to decide who you are and whose you are. Jesus fulfilled what was true of all the prophets, and that is, they're not without honor except within their own hometowns and among their own family members. You know, sometimes, it's one, it's, sometimes it is those who know you best that will keep you from being who God is calling you to be. Sometimes it's your closest friends who will tempt you into sin. You know, when a missionary family is called to a mission field, often the strongest opposition they face to going to a mission field is from their family. And the greatest tragedy in this account, and what I've, what I've heard called the saddest verse in the whole Bible, was verse 58. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. You see, God is pleased to act in response to faith, 
God responds to faith. Why? Because it is faith in him that gives him the glory, right? Faith is not a work. Faith is a posture of the heart. Faith is faith can't be a work because faith says, I can't work. I need God to work for me. Faith is a looking away from the self in humble, trusting dependence on God to exercise his power for your good. Faith, by definition, is God-exalting because it's looking away from self and looking to God. Unbelief, by definition, is God-belittling because it looks away from God and looks to the self. All we need, all we need to see God act on our behalf is faith. But where there is no faith, we can expect little of God's power. And so the question from this section that we want to ask ourselves is, how much are we like the Nazarenes? How much do we think that we got Jesus figured out? Is there any place in our lives where we not, we're not seeing God work because we don't believe that he will, that he can. We're in our church, or we're seeing little of God's power because we don't, we're not looking to him in faith. So the first warning here is the warning against unbelief. The second is that of pride. That of pride. This is the story of Herod the Tetrarch. It says at that time, Herod heard about the fame of Jesus, he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Because Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. So what I want to highlight here is Herod's pride. There's a lot more than pride working in this situation. But I want to highlight Herod's uh, arrogant shirking of the law. Herod is Herod Antipas. He was the son of Herod the Great, who was the Herod who ruled when Jesus was born. His father, Herod the Great, was the one who ordered all the children to be killed around Bethlehem trying to kill Jesus. Herod Antipas... Uh, was one of his sons. When Herod the Great died, the kingdom was divided among his sons. Herod the Great, um, so Antipas' father, was an Idumean, which means he was a descendant of Esau. Okay, he was a descendant of Esau. Uh, but his power over Israel was established by Rome. That's how, that's how the Herods came into power over uh, the land of Israel, is by, um, by Roman authority backing them. Okay, so Herod, so Herod Antipas's mother was a Samaritan. So Herod Antipas was half Edomian or descendant of Esau and half Samaritan. Okay, and Antipas was actually educated in Rome, where he imbibed many of the moral vices of Roman aristocracy. Okay, so the 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 Jews then in the region of Galilee, because Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, which 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 would have been the northern region of Israel. Okay, they were ruled by a half Idumean, half Samaritan person with Roman moral vices. In other words, he wasn't a great leader, and the Jews didn't like him. Okay, 
On top of all this, he married, as was common at that time, a neighboring king's daughter, the daughter of King Aretas of Arabia. Um, but his brother Philip's wife, so Herod Philip was his brother. Okay, his brother Philip married Herodias, okay, and she would become Herod Antipas's downfall because he would, in order to marry his brother's wife, he would divorce Aretas' daughter, okay, starting a war between him and Aretas, which he lost, okay? And then, um, uh, and, but he ended up with Herodias, okay, and John the Baptist, now I want you to think about John the Baptist, so this is a, a, a leader backed by Roman authority who has, who has Abrahamic ancestry but is not a Jew but I think kind of purports to be religious, okay? And you have John the Baptist here calling out this king, which by the I mean, we don't understand what it's like. There's no checks and balances. There's no rights and privileges. A king's going to do whatever they want to do. And John has the gall and the gusto to tell the king of Galilee what you're doing with your brother's wife is wrong. You're sexually immoral. And he had John imprisoned for doing so. But... This, this just tells you about Herod. But he, he wanted to kill him, but he was reticent to kill him because John had respect among the people. In other words, Antipas, as bothered as he was by John, was still a politician. Furthermore, it seems he was somewhat superstitious. And even though he disjained John for condemning him... <laughs> He still couldn't help but almost admire John because he knew that John had gusto and that he was a holy man and that he was a man of conviction and a man of consistency and a man of courage, which is why I think we get a sense of Herod's guilty conscience when he hears about Jesus. I think it's a, a telltale sign of Herod's guilty conscience that when he hears about Jesus, he thinks it's John the Baptist risen from the dead because he knew what he did was wrong. But I want to highlight here Antipas's pride. I'm sure, no doubt, Herod thought himself to be very great. But you see, how history remembers it from the biblical storyline is that the man that he killed, John the Baptist, is remembered as far greater than he. In fact, probably in Antipas's mind, in his mind, he thought, man, this guy John the Baptist is a blemish on my story. But the way history and God remembers it is that Antipas is a blemish in John the Baptist's story. Antipas's greatest pride, however, was his presumption to belittle God by shirking God's law. Again, though not technically Jewish, he had religious pretenses. This is probably indicated by the fact that he was in Jerusalem during Passover, when Jesus was crucified, they actually brought him. They actually brought Jesus before Herod. Um, so, dis despite his transparently thin religious facade, when it came to the woman he wanted, he said, "Forget God. Forget the law. 
I'm going to do what I want. So what we learn from Herod is that beware the pride that would lead us to say, who cares to God's law? The Apostle Paul put it this way. He said, Romans chapter 2, verse 4, he said, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In other words, yeah, God's kind to people who don't deserve it. Why? So that they'll repent. Because God forgives the repentant. But don't take his patience, don't take his mercy and kindness to sin. Don't, don't take it the wrong way. Don't, mis, don't misunderstand what Jesus is doing by being patient towards sinners, by what God is doing. He's not overlooking. He's not saying sin's not a big deal. He's just being patient so that his kindness might lead people to repentance. But what about the people who do presume upon God's grace and keep sinning anyways? Verse 5, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You see that? God is patient towards people, but people who presume upon his kindness, thinking, oh, well, my sin's not a big deal. Oh, God's merciful, so it won't be a big deal. My sin's not a big deal. And they never repent of their sin. What they're actually doing is presuming upon God's kindness, and every day they go and unrepentant is another, is, is their, their bucket of wrath destined for them being filled up and filled up and filled up, storing it up. For it to be poured out on them on the last day. The more of God's grace that you presume upon, the more wrath you're storing up for yourself. At the end of days. Verse 6, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. You see that? You don't have to be the quote-unquote worst person in the world. All you got to do is seek yourself. And you are rebelling against the God who made you, knows you, and created you. You are taking all of the grace and the goodness that he has lavished upon your life and using it for yourself without any thought to him who gave it to you. To him who is self-seeking and does not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. He shows no partiality. So beware the pride that would lead us to say, who cares to the law of God? So unbelief, pride, and finally, number three, cowardice. It says there in verse 5, chapter 14, though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. When Herod's birthday came, uh, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. That is so cruel. It's sick. But it tells you how bad Herodias hated John the Baptist. Because he had the gusto to call them out on their sin. The king was sorry because of his oaths. 
and his guests he com- uh, and because of his guests he commanded it to be given. He sat and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. So we see unbelief and pride, and finally here we see cowardice. I think one of the greatest needs for Christians today is courage. The strength to not bend in the face of increasing cultural and societal pressure. It's true of every generation. I'm thinking about writing a little bit something about this book. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm not reading it. I'm listening to it. It's a book about what happened in the years in Germany leading up to World War II. It's shocking what Hitler was able to do because even though the average German was a fairly decent person according to human standards, all they did was nothing. That's it. Their neighbors started disappearing. They knew what was happening and they did nothing. Why? Because if you stood up to Hitler, you might disappear too. There's an unusually strong bent in our current cultural climate to want to be approved by our peers, to not want to be on the wrong, quote-unquote, the wrong side of history. There's incredible power in peer pressure. Herod, dare we say it, though he is a king, is clearly a weak man, a weak man and a coward. He was a coward because he feared the people. He He didn't rule to serve the people. He ruled to preserve his status. That's what he did. He didn't, he didn't kill John not because he didn't want to. He wanted to kill John. The only reason he didn't kill John is because he thought it would be politically inexpedient. In other words, he didn't have conviction. He just did whatever he thought would be expedient at the time. That was his main concern, political expediency. Now, I thank God for the fact that popular opinion restrained Herod from his evil. That's a good thing. That's why we need accountability. That's why I think the American experiment was brilliant, because it has checks and balances. Because you want to know what's really inside of a person? Don't take away everything they have. Give them unaccountable, unchecked power. Then you'll find out what's really inside of a person, when they can do anything they want without consequences. So public accountability is great, but Herod didn't kill John out of conviction. He didn't kill him out of political expediency. He was a coward. Second, we see his cowardice in the fact that he allowed himself to be utterly manipulated by his wife. He refused to stand against her even when he knew it wasn't right. Many have noted, and it's really hard to miss if you think about it, how Herod and Herodias... Uh, have a lot of parallels to Ahab and Jezebel. So you remember Ahab? Ahab was cowardly too. He had, there was a vineyard next to his palace and he wanted that vineyard. And, and he asked Naboth to sell that vineyard and Naboth said, this is my, Naboth was a righteous man. This is my inheritance. God forbid that I should sell my, my family's inheritance. So what does Ahab do? The king of Israel. He goes to his room and acts like a baby. 
mopes around the house. Oh, I'm so sorry for myself. I can't have the vineyard that I wanted. Then Jezebel walks in and says, what's eating you? And then she concocts this plan to have worthless men accuse Naboth, falsely accuse him of blaspheming God, and they take him out of the city and stone him. Guess what, Ahab? Now you can have your vineyard. Coward. Ahab wouldn't stand up to his wife. Herod wouldn't stand up to his wife. Godly manhood is not being a baby. It's not, it's not moping around when you don't get what you want. It's being secure in Christ, full and free in Him so that you can give yourself for others. But being godly requires courage. And finally, we see his cowardice in his regretting his oath to Herodias' daughter and yet still going through with it. Herod made a foolish oath. He promised to give her whatever she asked for. And yet, what we see there is that when she requested John the Baptist's head, he knew he messed up. But he refused to go back on his word. But get this, he didn't refuse to go back on his word because he was an honorable man. He refused to go back on his word because he didn't want to be embarrassed in front of his peers. His, his aristocrats. He knew what he did was wrong, but he didn't have the courage to own up to his foolish oath. He did. You see, if he backed out of his oath, he would be doing what? Admitting that he was wrong. And sometimes we are so proud that we commit ourselves to a foolish decision and we know it's foolish and we stick with it for no other reason but we don't want to we don't want to look like a fool. We don't want to we don't want the people who said don't do this. We don't want them to think that they were right. We're too proud. So we commit ourselves to a foolish decision rather than just simply acknowledge that we were wrong. A lot of lives have been destroyed that way. It takes humility to admit you were wrong. It takes courage. There's a strength that's required to admit one's weaknesses. There is no weakness so great as refusing to admit that you have any. It takes courage to do the right thing. It takes courage to stand for Christ. I want to I wanna just, it's kind of lengthy here, but I, I want to read you this. Uh, this is from September 27th, 2020, so not very long ago. I've shared some stuff about you with this before. I encourage you to follow it on Facebook. It's actually a Facebook group called Pray for Early Rain Covenant Church. Early Rain Covenant Church is a church in China. In December of 2018, uh, the church was raided and Many of the church leaders were arrested, including one of their elders named Li Ying Chang, I'm going to say. And he was in jail for eight months and then released on probation and required to live in his hometown, um, was required to live in his hometown and only serve his church through virtual means. Uh, but after his probation ended back near September of last year, 
Okay, he longed to move back to Chengdu, which is where the church met. So he was for he was in prison for eight months, had to live in in his hometown for uh, on probation for a long time. But when his probation went up, he wanted to move back to Chengdu to minister to his church family. Okay, but when the authorities in Chengdu got word of his return, they immediately began harassing him. Now, so just so just remember, this isn't a story. This happened to one of our brothers, and it's happening right now. I want, you to, I want you to read this, and I want you to understand the situation that he's in and how he's responding to it. Okay, These are some English translations of some of his journal entries. Okay, So September 27, 2020, at 8.50 p.m., a group of six people from Chengdu Public Security Bureau came to our door. Three of them identified themselves as Officer Chen, Officer Zhao, Officer Zhu of the National Security Bureau. Two identified themselves as Officer Wei and Officer Wang of the Qingyang Public Security Bureau. The other identified himself as Chief Dai of the Koatong Road Police Station. We received them into our home. They repeatedly told me, you are not welcome in Chengdu. The Chengdu people do not welcome you, and on and on. They informed us that they may take a number of measures, including but not limited to strictly surveilling us, following us, legally making it uncomfortable for us to live here, legally depriving us of the custody of our children, and so forth. I stated to them that I wanted to communicate properly with them and did not want a confrontation. I told them I hoped they would not knowingly break the law or enforce it in an unlawful way. I told them that we are simply believers in Christ who want to bless the city of Chengdu. I said that we obey the authorities even if they break the law, we still will, will submit to them and are willing to pay the price for our faith. Eight people arrived at our door from the Chengdu Qingyang District Public Security Bureau Office, the Bureau of Ethnic and Religious Affairs, the Bureau of Education, and the Subdistrict Office. Um, we received them into our home. The people, the, the people from the Bureau of Education began, listen to this, began by informing us that we had violated the compulsory education law. Beware when the government says they know what's better for your children than you do. We had violated the compulsory education law by not sending our school-aged children to public school. They said that if we would like to send our children to school, they could help us contact the relevant people. My wife indicated to them that during my incarceration, people from the Department of Education in my wife's hometown came to her home dozens of times to force her to send our children to public school. But because we were Christian, she would not allow our children to receive an atheist education because the Communist Party is officially atheistic. The gentleman from the education department said that the state authorities could lawfully deprive us of guardianship and then send our, public, our children to public school. We responded by saying that we would not allow our children to receive an atheist education as long as we were still the guardians of our children. To this day, there are still multiple, six by my rough count, he says, families of our church staff that are under 24-hour surveillance. So my family returned to Chengdu because we wanted to return to our brothers and sisters to be chained with those in chains, to mourn with those who mourn. In a sense, in a sense, I am not returning to Chengdu to shepherd these brothers and sisters, but to share with them in the suffering that God has given his people at this time, as well as to share with them in his peace 
that surpasses all understanding. I was supposed to preach on September 27th, but I had to cancel it because we had an unexpected visitor. The text I was going to preach from was 1 Peter 3, verses 13-22. I will end my journal entry with verses 13-16. It says, now, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. May the Lord help us to treasure up these words in our hearts, for it is a great blessing to be united with Christ through suffering and to have the opportunity to experience a few difficulties for the sake of the faith. This morning, my son was very sad that he could not go out to play. I picked him up and said to him, Yes, of course, it is sad that our freedoms are restricted, but what is that compared to what the Lord Jesus suffered for us? The Lord has already given us freedom and revealed that we are his heavenly people, so we need not be sad. If we can't travel to somewhere far away, we'll go to somewhere nearby. If we're not allowed to take a taxi, we'll walk. If one day we're not allowed to go out, we'll still thank the Lord because we don't even deserve this little bit of freedom. It is a gift from him. I am reminded that the Lord in heaven is watching over us all the time. And not even a sparrow will fall to the ground apart from his will. So I have peace like a river. Thank you, Lord. You see, in America, we have a tendency to think, you know, we've got the faith, we send the missionaries. But when it comes to suffering for Jesus, we've got a lot to learn. We've got a lot to learn, and we better start learning. We better start learning. It takes courage to do the right thing, to follow Christ. It takes courage to even come to Jesus. Maybe someone right now is listening to this sermon, and their pride is telling them, you don't need to go forward. You don't need to talk to that preacher. You don't need to admit that you were wrong and ask for forgiveness. It takes courage to do all those things. But it's freeing when you acknowledge that you can't do it and you need God. So if you want to know Jesus Christ this morning, don't let pride keep you from knowing King Jesus. Let's pray.